Air Credit Card, brought to you by Bank of Ireland in partnership with Aer Lingus. Whether you're buying your weekly basics or splurging on a special gift, with Air Credit Card, you'll collect Avios and unlock even more rewards. The only credit card in Ireland that gives you travel rewards as you spend. Sign up now by searching Bank of Ireland Air Credit Card and go from tap to take off. Bank of Ireland, begin. Over 18s only. Acceptance criteria, lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. Subject to a monthly fee of €7.99 and annual government stamp duty of €30. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Back on track with Bobby Kerr. Thanks to Bank of Ireland. We can, we will begin. very welcome to Back on Track. Our aim is to find out how businesses have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, how they've adapted and what the outlook for each sector is moving forward. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the agri-sector and we've gathered a panel of experts and industry leaders to discuss what's happening. I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Cullinan. He's the president of the Irish Farmers Association. Pat O'Toole is a journalist with the Irish Farmers Journal and economist Jim Power also joins us. Tim, I might just start with you. Um, uh, crops grow, cattle have to be fed. You know, I suppose nature really was unaffected in some ways by the pandemic, but the marketplace would have changed drastically. Tell me more. Absolutely, Bobby, you're right. I mean, since the onset of COVID, uh, the world we, as we know it has changed. And I suppose, look, I suppose when you look at it, agriculture and farmers, you know, obviously the, the health service were front line. But, you know, I think we were second after the health service because we did continue to produce, you know, good quality, wholesome food. And, you know, that was critical during the pandemic. But I suppose you're right, the world was turned upside down. And the first major challenge we had was the whole food service sector completely shut down, you know, right across Europe, so right across the world. And... Ireland, particularly in our beef and dairy sector, are very dependent on, we have a few routes to market, and obviously one of them is the food service sector. And that created turmoil in the beef sector. We've seen prices collapse anything from approximately 370 a kilo right back down to maybe 320, 330 a kilo. And uh, at that point, there was even problems getting cattle slaughtered off the farm. So you had cattle building up on farms, poor prices. And there was also a threat to the dairy industry at the time. There was concern that if some of the dairy processing plants had to be hit with COVID, that they wouldn't be able to process all of the milk that was coming. And, you know, when you come into the month of April and May, you're coming into what we call peak milk. You know, the cows are at their best point of the year. And there was a proposal early on in the stage to get farmers to go back to once a day milking, which would be catastrophic for for the dairy sector. But look, thankfully that didn't uh, materialise, and and you know all every litre of milk was processed. The dairy industry did take a hit earlier on in price, but we are seeing a recovery in that market at the moment. And of course, on the beef sector, since. Uh, food service has started to reopen across Europe. So we are seeing improvement in price there as well. Okay. So look, that's where we were really hit the hardest um, during COVID. Um, Pat O'Toole, a journalist with the Irish Farmers Journal, 
Uh, interesting to hear Tim uh, talk there. When I look at farming and you look at, you know, you look at beef, you look at dairy, you look at tillage, you know, if you look at them closely, they're, they're all very different businesses, but they're all categorised as farms. There's massive differences uh, in scale, in intensity and in enterprise across Irish farming. If you go back a generation or a generation and a half, most farms were mixed and had three at least enterprises. Um, a lot of farms had poultry, had vegetables, had pigs. Uh, that's gone now. Farms specialise. Most farms are single enterprise or perhaps a mix of sheep and cattle. Uh, dairy farms would have typically carried beef, but since the end of quotas, most dairy farms are now just specialising in milk production and sell their, their uh, male cattle young. So um, there is a huge diversity across farms, and the challenge for the people who make the rules and who are uh, organising farming um, at, at that macro level in Brussels and in Dublin is to find a strategy that allows each farm to prosper uh, in its own sector. Um, I do think that two things happened during the, the lockdown. Uh, which could be significant in the long term. Um, one was the changing view of uh, the, the consumer and, and the voter and the taxpayer to uh, rural life farming and its relationship with the environment. People uh, uh, enjoyed food uh, in a different way. I think food time, meal time became very important to families as they shared lockdown time together. And a lot of families, while under stress and under pressure, we look back on the lockdown as very precious time that was spent together by family members. And food was a very central part of that, food preparation and the consumption of food, mealtimes. Um, I, th I think we're guilty in Ireland of, of rushing our food, maybe, and uh, uh, everyone's on the run uh, with the pace of life. That slowed down a lot. I think the second thing is that people saw clear skies. Uh, I don't know what the scientific evidence will be in terms of the impact of the lack of air travel and road travel on biodiversity, but it felt with the wonderful spring we had and the glorious weather, everybody was walking, it felt like the birds were singing more vigorously than, than yeah. before. And, and uh, nature was healing itself to a certain extent side by side with normal farming activity. And the final thing then, I think, um, that was that farmers uh, owe a debt, especially to the uh, service sectors to them, people who worked in meat processing, milk delivery, who worked hard through the managing risk, um, through the lockdown, uh, to keep farming going. And uh, I think that debt is recognised and understood, and especially for those workers in meat plants, where there are a lot of cases of COVID, um, where there has been a lot of frac uh, fracture, and where I think farmers would uh, take issue with meat plant owners, I think there'll be a changed relationship with the workers kept it going, whatever about the owners. Yeah, I think that they're very good observations, Pat. Uh, Jim Power, economist, uh, as somebody who's been very close to the agri-food sector uh, throughout your career, Jim, how do you feel it's looking at the moment? Well, uh, I, I, I chair Love Irish Foods, uh, Bobby, and talking to the members in recent weeks, I mean, generally, they're not very enthusiastic about life at the moment. Uh, they are concerned about the, uh, the outlook uh, because lots of stuff has changed, as previous speakers have said. Um, okay, obviously the thing that hit the agri-food sector very significantly was the shutdown of food service businesses, you know, restaurants, hotels, gastropubs, etc., um, canteens. So that had a very, very significant impact. And while we did see 
people queuing in the supermarkets for food, um, the loss of food service business was significantly greater than any gains from people buying in the supermarkets. Um, but I suppose the good news now is that food service businesses are reopening on a gradual basis. Um, but speaking to, particularly in Dublin city centre, speaking to a number of restaurateurs and food service businesses, um, maybe they were or maybe they weren't expecting it, I'm not sure, but there seems to be a slight sense of shock that actually the lunchtime trade is very, very poor simply because we still have thousands of people working from home. So that's creating um, a, a challenging environment for the food service business. Um, I, I think one of the big positives out of this is the fact that, you know, at the beginning of March, when people started to queue in supermarkets, um, people were concerned that the food supply chain would not hold up, that we'd have scarcities, et cetera, et cetera. And I think between the retail sector and the agri-food producers, from farmers to um, the, the processes and so on, um, the food supply chain held up really, really well, and any of those fears were unfounded. And I would hope at the end of all of this, um, you know, just as people's views on nature and the, the impact it's had on nature will, will have changed. Um, but I also think, I hope there will be a much greater appreciation of what food production actually means in this country. Having a secure supply of safe food is incredibly important. And when you look at some of the videos that have come out of China, for example, the food markets and so on, um, I think we should thank our lucky stars that we live in a country where the quality of food production is incredibly strong from the primary producer all of the way up until it lands on the plate. And I, I hope people will refocus back in on that. And I really do hope people will be much more inclined to support domestic um, food producers um, fr from here on, because they certainly have, pardon the pun, stood up to the plate over the last three or four months and delivered what the consumer wants. Yeah. And as, as Pat said, definitely, um, I think mealtime it, it garnered much, much greater significance for most people um, over the last three or four months of lockdown. So while the environment is challenging and, you know, the challenges from cap reform, et cetera, into the future will continue to create a challenging environment. Well, at, at least the, uh, the, the positive attributes of the sector have certainly um, stood up to be counted. Back on track with Bobby Kerr. Thanks to Bank of Ireland. We can, we will, begin. My guests are Tim Cullinan, the President of the Irish Farmers Association, uh, the Pat O'Toole, journalist from the Irish Farmers Journal, and economist Jim Power. Uh, Tim, that's very interesting, just hearing from Pat and Jim there. Uh, one of the things that Pat just mentioned there was the you know, the, the single, I suppose, unit farm, as in I'm in beef or I'm in dairy, that if something goes wrong in your marketplace, you don't have another market on which you can rely. So farms can potentially be more isolated in, in, in a challenging environment. Yeah, and look, Bobby, you're right. There has been a shift. It's on the type of... of farm operations. So farmers have specialised in either dairy or beef or cereals or, or pig or poultry production. And I suppose, look, um, each sector, so 
they, they work closely hand in hand together. And I suppose if we look at the different sectors, you have the dairy sector, you know, which is predominantly to the east of of the country. And you know, I suppose there were shackles on the dairy dairy industry up until the abolition of, of quotas. And you know, we've seen, you know, in fairness, um, dairy farmers have embraced um, the abolition of the quota that can drive on. We've seen um, an increase in production of in excess of 40 percent. Massive amount of investment has gone in at farm level and on a processing level as well. So that's one side of it. Then you have the beef industry and you, know, you have a suckler farmer that's producing beef cattle. And uh, so those farmers are really relying, like there's this two forms of income for a beef farmer. One obviously is from the marketplace, which you know can be vulnerable and uh, very difficult very volatile, a very difficult market, you know, from, from period to period. And those farmers are, you know, absolutely relying on a single farm payment for their income. And so in, in cases it's well in excess of hundred percent of their income that's coming from direct payments. And I suppose look, that is something that I would be very concerned about at the moment. So you know, we're all aware that we had the, the heads of state in Europe, you know, they were, they were in discussions for it went on for into the fifth day which is unusual. I know it was the macro figure, you know, the, the, we were talking there of a budget in total of 1.8 trillion if you include the recovery fund, 750 million. But in that is the, the, the 1 trillion or 1.1 trillion uh, the MFF budget and out of that there comes the cap budget as well. And so I am just a bit concerned about that this morning. We haven't got full clarity on it yet. So and was there job, some talk that... Uh that the proposal might include limiting payments uh, to 100,000 per beneficiary, would that affect large farmers? Yeah, well, obviously, that's, look, that is uh, obviously a topical debate. And uh, But I think what's more important before we get down to there, Bobby, is you know, to ensure that uh, our budget is secure. And, you know, we were looking, obviously, from a, a commitment from the Taoiseach all over the weekend to ensure that at a minimum, that the payments that farmers had up to 2020 would be maintained going forward. And, you know, this, what's happening here now is we have a green deal and you have a farm to fork and biodiversity. And there's an awful lot of new environmental measures in there. And, you know, we're talking about having farmers, uh, or sorry, having farm farms convert to organic farming, 25% of farms convert converting to organic farming by 2030. On the one hand, uh, we've been asked to produce more food, good quality food. On the other hand, our hand has been tied behind our backs, you know, with all the restrictions that's coming and I, getting, I, I, getting, getting, and getting less money to do it. So, look, this is a major challenge for farming going forward. And, you know, I think, I think Pat has rightly pointed out there that we've seen our environment, you know, we've seen the greenness of the country, you know, maybe we were just blessed with good weather, but definitely, you know, agriculture being blamed for climate change on its own, you know, that's a massive debate, and it's a, bit, a debate we need to take forward now. And are you concerned, the, Tim, about these green policies and the impact that they might have on, on indeed, your members and on farmers generally? Are you concerned that, I suppose, that even the politics... Uh, of 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 green politicians just might be anti-farmer. 
yeah, look, I suppose we have a, a Green Party in government and, and you know, Bobby, our job is not to work with every party. Obviously, we are concerned, but like the shift in Brussels, as I said, with the whole farm to fork strategy is for more environmental measures. So we have an eco scheme that will be coming in as well, so which is going to affect like the basic payment. Like we have two payments. You have the basic payment in Pillar 1, which was a payment that was originally introduced to compensate farmers for producing cheap food. And you know, that's, that's what we have been doing for a long number of years. But now there seems to be a shift there that part of that payment will go into an eco scheme, so which is bringing in environmental measures that farmers have to adhere to, but at the same time trying to produce the same amount of food at, at the same price. And, you know, there's a lot more restrictions around that. Yeah. But that is difficult for farmers. And, you know, there's, there's an awful lot can be done. And farmers have are, you know, are ready and willing to take on environmental measures. We've all, we have been doing that for years. But you know, we need fair play in this debate as well. So if you look at it, the amount of carbon that's been sequestered in farms right around the country, uh, in the hedgerows, trees that are on farms, and in grassland as well, there's no allowance for that. So which is, uh, so we need to bring fair play and okay. balance to, to the debate. Like I, I, I was actually in the west of Ireland yesterday. So if you travel around the west of Ireland and the the landscape that's there, like people from all over the world, you know, they, they, they love to come to the, to the west of Ireland. And you're just talking about, just, I suppose, just going back to COVID for a second. And the amount of people coming out from the towns and cities now to rural Ireland is actually incredible at the moment. But there's massive restrictions being put on, on farmers, so in, 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 particularly in the west of Ireland and, and all the disadvantaged areas, as in even getting planning to, you know, to build for their own families. So, so, I mean, we had a shift. Everybody wanted to move into the towns and cities, and we've seen the effects COVID has had on you know, where there's people living in very uh, high-density areas, and we're moving people out of the countryside. And I think there needs to be a rebalance there. We need to have a relook at the, the, the planning laws, not only on housing, but on, on, on development of smaller okay. businesses as well. Uh, Pat O'Toole, um, there may indeed, will there not be a possible, I suppose, uplift in people wanting to move to rural Ireland, not necessarily farmers, but you, you said something earlier there, Pat, about people being more concerned about their food. And I think people maybe want to get closer to where their food comes from, i.e., uh, does that present an opportunity for farmers, uh, indeed, with more people moving to rural Ireland and people wanting to get co- closer to their food source. An opportunity and a challenge um, uh, for those farmers who are uh, do- dealing directly with the consumer. And th- that is a growing niche. Um, th- that opportunity will be increased. I think the likes of farmers markets, artisan food companies, and, and artisan food producers uh, dealing directly with, with the consumer. Uh, th- there is an opportunity, and there is a cohort of people who are willing to pay more for food uh, based on provenance and quality. Uh, but for the broader sector, the vast majority of farmers produce food to sell to processors. Um, they're not marketer, marketeers. They don't have the skill sets. It's a very complex skill set to produce food to the quality that is expected of us in the EU. And to add to that the skill sets to then market your food and sell it, that's uh, beyond most farmers, to be honest. Yeah. Um, 
always will be. So we need the processors, and we need big processors as well as small processors. Uh, we export 90% of our food, so it's the international mood that will determine uh, the prospects for Irish agriculture ultimately. Um, we are perceived as being a, a, a green country, and uh, Origin Green, which is the flagship, I suppose, brand of Irish food from Arnua, um, is going to be tested now. The, the renationalisation of markets is a real problem for Ireland if it happens, and you are right, um, it's not just in Ireland where people are going to talk about local uh, supply lines because of the disruption to trade in the initial states of co stages of COVID. Countries like China and Russia will want to secure the lines of supply, and Ireland is a long way from markets like that. So really, I think there's going to be a huge focus for Ireland on our core markets in Europe, um, and maintaining um, our, our market in the UK post-Brexit, which is going to be incredibly challenging if we have a crash out. It's going to be difficult anyway. Yeah. Probably the key factor for Irish agri-food over the next five months is how the Brexit negotiations pan out and what kind of deal we end up having with, both uh, in terms of the disruption of trade north and south on the island, but also east-west between Ireland and the UK, which still accounts for a huge proportion of our dairy and beef. Um, and I think that um, uh, that's, that's an incredible challenge. While managing the challenges of biodiversity, uh, there, there's, two, there's two key challenges for farming in terms of the environment. One is uh, biodiversity, and the other is our carbon footprint. And they are challenging, but they can be met. Um, the Green Party in government can be looked on in two ways. Uh, one is that it's time to grasp the nettle. Uh, there are difficult decisions to be made, but the Green Party are committed to uh, environmental enhancement, and farming should be too. In, our, in the long term, it's the right way to go. It's about getting there. We need to plan a, a roadmap to where we want to be, um, and the Green Party uh, has agreed to a programme for government where there will be 7% per year reductions in our an, an output, our carbon footprint, um, year on year, but that will be... Uh, loaded towards the back end as we get the strategies enacted um, it, we will build up momentum towards reaching that average target for the decade so it, uh, it's not incredible pressure in the first year but the pressure is on to get those programs up and running and farming will play its part in that with farm incomes where they are they've been static for a long time and the reality is that a lot of farmers will feel they don't have much to lose in a way because the, what's work, happening at the moment is not working on the ground for farmers in terms of incomes particularly for cattle and sheep farmers. Yeah. And a mix where the product price gains a little bounce from the marketplace, plus the recognition of the work they're doing to farm in harmony with the environment is rewarded by the new cap, could work. Okay, Jim, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting business farming in one sense in that if you're a beef producer, you know, you, you, you sell uh, to a processor who sells to a supermarket, you know, who sells to a consumer. So in one sense, you're a long way from the consumer and there's a lot of stuff that happens, you know, when the, when the steer leaves your farm uh, till it arrives on the customer's plate. So, you know, is there the relationship between processors and farmers has always been fraught, but it's probably, uh, I suppose, enhanced is probably the wrong word, but it, it's probably fueled by the supermarkets dictating the price to the processor? 
Well, it's it's a complicated supply chain, and and I think of any farming enterprise, beef is probably the most complicated. Um, because you say the retailers and supermarkets dictate price. Actually, I don't think that's correct. I think consumers dictate price. And one of the features of the, the, the food environment over the last 10 or 15 years has been downward pressure on prices at the consumer level. So if you have a supply chain, just look at it this way, you know, the and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but the, the bottom of the supply chain is the farmer, the primary producer who's producing beef, dairy, whatever, okay? In the middle then you have the processor and then on above the processor you have the retailer and I suppose overlying all of that is the consumer, be it a domestic or an international consumer. And we, what we've seen, and this is not just an Irish phenomenon, this food price deflation is a massive issue. So if you are, you know, selling food into a consumer market where over a 10-year period prices are not going up um, and yet go down the supply chain, the cost of operation for everybody, the retailer, the processors, particularly the farmers, are increasing. So it's a very complicated supply chain. And unfortunately for farmers, traditionally, you know, the farmer has been the weakest link in that supply chain in the sense that it has least power in that supply chain. So farmers' margins have been squeezed, squeezed, squeezed by what's going on um, higher up in the supply chain. And um, quite frankly, um, I don't see that changing very much because um, I would love to think consumers would be prepared to pay a higher price for a higher quality product. Um, but the reality is that that's unlikely to be the case. And then if you, you know, superimpose the, the structural changes that have occurred in the retail sector, you know, the biggest development in retail over the last 15 years has been the advent and growth of the discounters, the Aldi's, the Littles of this world. And I mean, their models are based on selling product as cheaply as possible to the consumer, you know, and, and they, can, they, they, they can do that while maintaining profits because they employ a lot less staff than the, the regular supermarkets. So while you have that sort of situation in place, you know, it's difficult to see the lot of the farmer particularly improving. And that's why um, the, the, the cap program that's going to dominate the next seven years will be so incredibly important. Uh, because if you want farmers producing food around the country, if you want farmers maintaining the environment, which is what they do as well through farming, well, then you are going to have to subsidize them through the common agricultural policy. And of course, the problem is that in real terms, over the last 15 years, um, the CAP support for farmers has been declining in real terms. So that's a significant issue. But I think we have a big choice to make here. You know, do we want to maintain Ireland as a food producing nation? Do we want to maintain the cohort of farmers that we have at the moment? Do we want to keep farmers um, behaving as guardians of the environment, which is what they are doing, uh, despite some of the populist nonsense that's thrown out there? Um, we are going to have to subsidize them full stop. And if we don't, we lose thousands of our farmers. We lose our, um, our power as a food producing nation. Um, frankly, I think that would be a massive mistake. So I think subsidization of farmers is absolutely essential um, for a, a variety of reasons. Tim, can I bring you to another matter that I was looking at recently, and that's farm safety. 
Uh, we have 5% of the population working in farming, but they represent 50% uh, of the accidents. A, a very worrying statistic that I saw trotted out. Um, are you and your organisation doing enough uh, to prevent accidents and tragedies on farms? I suppose, look, Bobby, <coughs> are we doing enough? You can never do enough because, you know, one one death is one too many. And I suppose, you know, if we a quick look at this, the, the more recent statistics, like 19 people lost their deaths on farms last year. This year to date, 14 people, unfortunately, have lost their lives. And um, I was just looking at a report yesterday from Dr. Michael Sheehan and, and Dr. Connor Deasy and in conjunction with Louise Brent, and they had a look at some of the deaths, but also the injuries since 2014 to 2016. And there was over 430 patients would have presented showing hospital with, with serious injuries from farm accidents as well. So look, obviously it's a massive challenge. And the age range goes anything from 1 to 93. Yeah. And I suppose, you know, it is. But I suppose, look, uh, I think... It goes back to the debate we've been having there for the last half an hour. Again, it's a low-income sector. People are working harder and harder, you know, to stand still, and, and that creates a lot of stress on farms as well. Yeah. Look, I'm not trying to make an excuse for farm safety, but, you know, when, when somebody's under pressure trying to create an income for their for their, their family, obviously everybody's under pressure. And so we have a lot of initiatives out there. And I think, I suppose... What I would like to see, Bobby, is so there's a number of groups or people advocating out there on farm safety. And I think, you know, the more people will come together and we would have one or two very clear voices in, you know, advocating on behalf of farm safety. Yeah. Because it is. Well, we did it. We did it with safety on the roads and we made massive gains by changing, I suppose, the culture. Around, yeah. around road safety. And, and does the same need to happen in farming, Tim? Yeah, I think, look, um, so we are involved in uh, quite a number of initiatives ourselves you know, where we do go out and do peer-to-peer where we bring farmers from neighbouring farms into a farm and go you know, go to uh, an individual's farm and, and neighbours or colleagues from the local locality would point out so risks are dangerous on that farm and, and so vice versa, which I think is all very good. But I suppose, look, it, it, we just have to keep hammering that message home. So the risks and I suppose there's so many dangers on farms. You know, machinery is far larger than it was even 10, 15 years ago. And uh, it's getting faster, obviously, and there needs to be a lot of care around that. And the other side, side of it is so there's a lot of older people working on farms on their own as yeah. well, dealing with livestock and going out into livestock. And of course, another problem is, particularly on livestock farms, so where animals wouldn't see people as often. And so there can be yeah. uh, more danger attached to that when you're handling animals, so get them in or whatever. And so there's so much of a risk around that as well. But look... Okay, no, no, well said. Um, yeah. uh, Pat, can I bring you uh, back towards, I suppose, a political dimension. We have a new Minister for Agriculture, Dara Cleary. Uh, do you think farmers will welcome his appointment? Uh, sure. Just before that, Bobby, just of a course, quick comment absolutely. on what Tim said, because yeah. we were actually one of those statistics. We lost my Uncle Lewis here on the farm 
2019. The figures are appalling, but the reality, I think the comparison you made with the road uh, and the culture shift is, is very uh, accurate. Martin Hayden echoed that with a, a video he did. For I Aguilar saw that video, very Monday. excellent video. But, but I think that par in parallel with that, there is a cost factor. Like I think the more accurate uh, parallel to draw is with the construction sector, which had a similar profile to farming. And there was a huge raft of regulations and enforcement of those regulations uh, in construction. It added significant costs to building. And the reality is that farming is ill-equipped to absorb that cost. There have been some incentives, like the TAMS, which is a farm safety element. Um, but uh, we're going to have to acknowledge the cost of uh, an elevated level of farm safety practice on farms because it slows things down and it creates a, um, a higher cost in food production. That's just the reality of it. And that has to be accounted for somewhere. Yeah, okay. In terms of Derek Cleary, yep. uh, Derek Cleary is... Um, uh, he's under pressure from day one. Now, he's had some success in his first uh, week in office. He has been uh, part of the con consultancy process, which has seen a cap budget agreed. The Council of Ministers uh, met on Monday in parallel with the meeting of the uh, heads of state, uh, which rolled into Monday and eventually saw an agreement uh, for the multi-annual financial framework and the cap. Um, he is challenged because... The, there are a number of, uh, of targets in the cap which are going to be very hard to achieve. For instance, they want 25% of food production to be organic. Can we just, yeah, I just wanted to ask about that, uh, Pat. Like, can you just explain the reality of that? Uh, the, what, what does a farm have to do to become organic? Like, it's, it, it sort of drifts off the tongue like 25%. It seems... You know, uh, but then when you think about it and you you analyse what's actually involved in that statistic. Sure. Well, organic farming essentially it's a philosophy. It's a philosophy that believes that you shouldn't use chemical inputs, and it's a philosophy I don't adhere to because I think that um, uh, there are there are appropriate uses of them. We have uh, on our home farm here, we're a tillage farm, and we've invested a lot. Uh, in changing to what's known as a min-till system. We're actually zero-till. We no longer plough, and that means it, it brings challenges, but it means that we don't release carbon. When you plough up ground, you release carbon. But intrinsic to uh, zero-till is the use of chemicals to kill off grass weeds, which are, are, are one of the main reasons for ploughing. You plough down uh, perennial grass weeds. Uh, which okay, are so you don't have to plough if you, if, you, if you use a particular... Chemical. Uh, yeah, you, you just use shallow, you, you basically you just tickle the top of the soil and insert the, the seed in that way. It is very sustainable, but without the uh, chemicals, which are under pressure, one of them, the main chemical actually is glyphosate, which is being, uh, uh, the banning of it is almost inevitable, more on political than scientific grounds. And in parallel with that, we have a problem where the amount of research and development that's being done by the chemical companies, especially in relation to pesticides in Europe, has been uh, uh, reduced massively in the last decade. They're switching to countries with lower regulation, like the United States, and away from Europe. So we're losing uh, existing technology, and we're not gaining new technology. So the challenge for organic farming, I suppose, um, it, to me it's quite specific. There are dry stock farms 
which would be a natural fit for organic farming where they're low input anyway and they could make the switch but they were there uh, they would need be a lot of training there would need to be a lot of incentivization the marketplace is currently returning a small extra margin to organic farmers but that's with the tiny niche production we have if you expand it to one quarter of all farms you will wipe out the margin and you're going to have to increase the supports for those farmers. Okay. So that's the challenge. But there's also the broader philosophical question of, is organic farming the right solution to the problems be, uh, being posed for farming and the environment? And I'm not convinced. Uh, Jim Power, any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think the, the, the economics of organic farming um, are incredibly difficult in terms of productivity in terms of the costs involved. Um, and I, I think it is very, very unrealistic to base a cap program on having 25% organic. Um, I think as Pat said, there, there are other ways of tackling this issue. Um, and I don't think that is the most effective way my guests are Tim Collins. Back on track with Farmers Bobby Kerr. Thanks to uh, Bank of Ireland. We can, we will begin. Journal and economist Jim Power. Um, what about Brexit, Jim? Um, we're just out of a, uh, you know, our, we're, we're emerging out of a, a COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, as we, as we move towards uh, the UK exit from Europe, we've got to have, I suppose, major farming concerns, given that we export 90% of our, of our food. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the path is becoming somewhat clear in the sense that we passed the key date of the 30th of June, by which time Britain would have had to apply for an extension of the transition period if it was going to do so. Um, Boris said the whole time he was not going to seek an extension, and indeed he didn't. So come what may, regardless of whether a trade deal is agreed or not, Britain will exit the transition mechanism on the 31st of December this year. And if a trade deal is not done at that stage, well, then we are entering into a whole new world the following morning with the WTO trade tariffs and so on. Um, there's a lot. There's still, though, a lot of negotiations to be undertaken. And I think you will see um, into August, into September and into October, um, there would be upping the ante in terms of the whole negotiation process. And while a lot of the mood music is still very negative, I think I, I have a gut instinct, and it's no more than a gut instinct. It's not based on science, but that some sort of deal will be done. It will be a watered-down deal. It will be less than the EU would have wanted, uh, but it will avoid Britain exiting without a trade deal on the 1st of January next um, and I think, you know, th that would be, in the circumstances, the least bad outcome. Uh, but there can be no certainty about that because the politics of Brexit, as we know from the UK, have over the last three or four years been totally irrational. And one of the biggest problems I think I've made with trying to analyse Brexit over the last few years has been to apply logic to it. There is no logic to this process. So it's, it's, it's a big risk. There's no doubt about that. And um, I hope we avoid the hard Brexit. But even if we don't, you know, the world is going to fundamentally change for trade between Ireland um, and the United Kingdom and indeed Ireland and the rest of the EU on the 1st of January next. So those are the challenges. Those are the threats yeah. we have.
prepare for. We also have to look at the opportunities. You know, there is certainly um, a distinct possibility that ahead of um, early next year, you will see hoarding of food products and so on in the United Kingdom. A lot of stuff, we, we import about 4 billion from the UK in food every year. So we could have some supply chain issues because of Brexit hoarding. So there is the opportunity for domestic producers to step in. I really think we've got to drive the agri-food sector forward now on the basis of import substitution. Um, just looking at the stuff we previously imported from the UK, can we produce it domestically? I think we have got to start looking yeah. Um, at those possibilities again. And, and indeed, in Love Irish Food, we have um, um, a competition going on that will double up the amount of advertising spend for a small number of member com companies early next year to try and make sure they build a strong brand here. You know, in other words, to fulfill the market that previously okay. went imports from the United Kingdom. So there are opportunities, but no doubt about it, Brexit um, is still characterized by intense uncertainty and intense challenges for every aspect of the Irish economy, but particularly for the agri-food sector. Tim, would you, Tim Cullinan, president of the IFA, would, would you support Jim's thoughts on that? Yeah, look, obviously, it's a massive worry for Irish farmers, um, Bobby, and I suppose, look, the best outcome for now at our our point of view is, I agree with Jim, look, hopefully, I hope, I hope Jim is right here on this one, hopefully that there will be a trade deal and, you know, that, there will, that it will be tariff-free, that we will be able to continue to export into the UK. You know, from a farming point of view, you know, 40% of our beef goes into the UK and 20% of our dairy. You know, it's a massive, it is massive. Um, market for, for our produce. And um, I suppose the other major concern we have is and John and I've taken this up with the UK on numerous occasions now is you know, are they going to continue to adhere to the standards they have because you know, if they lower the standards well then it, it opens the option of importing particularly um, beef and, 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 and chicken from, from South America and you know, if that is to happen it, it could have a devastating impact. You would on, hope that the consumer wouldn't allow that happen Tim, yeah. would in the sense that no one really wants to go back on food standards, surely. No, I I, I, I totally accept that. But um, earlier on, uh, back about a month ago, Neil Parrish, uh, he did bring um, a motion to, to the Parliament over there on uh, upholding standards, and that failed to go through. So, look, that was worrying for me. But, you know, I think, I suppose, we still have to be optimistic. I suppose the other point I want to make on that one is there was uh, in the EU negotiations over the weekend, there is a five billion fund there for countries most affected uh, in the case of, 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 uh, of uh, Brexit. And I think, you know, we're talking about five billion across Europe. I think we will need most of that five billion here in Ireland you know, if, if, if this is a crash out and if they do leave. So I think even a billion wouldn't do a lot for us. You know, we're seeing our economy at the moment. Like it's got, uh, we're more leaking five to six billion a month. So I, I think that is a fund that I think the teacher okay. needs needs to be ring fencing as much as possible as that for Ireland at the moment. Um, last word to you, Pat O'Toole, uh, from the Irish Farmers Journal. Um, uh, you're there. There are some real concerns there. Listening to both Jim and Tim, 
uh, about Brexit uh, in, in, in the months coming ahead? Just the disruption to normal activity uh, in, in farming and in, in further processing. A lot of milk goes north. Um, about 700,000 sheep come south for processing. Uh, about uh, 700,000 cattle go north and across to the UK. So you have, you have an awful lot of just normal trade. We also have, use Europe as a land bridge for a lot of uh, transport across to the European mainland. So um, it means that uh, the normal day-to-day trade is going to be massively disrupted, uh, notwithstanding the big picture, uh, by any Brexit. So it is challenging. The only thing is we've known about it for some years and Irish agriculture has always proved resilient to any challenge. This may be the biggest we have faced since our accession to the EU. As long as Europe stands by us, we'll be fine. But we really do need Europe to stand by us and that means huge funding, as Tim has said. OK, well, look, it's been a, a really interesting discussion from my perspective. It is back on track. I want to thank my guests, Tim Cullinan, President of the Irish Farmers Association, Pat O'Toole, a journalist and farmer and from the Irish Farmers Journal and uh, economist uh, Jim Power. Thank you all very much for your time and for, indeed for your wisdom. Back on track with Bobby Kerr. Thanks to Bank of Ireland. We can, we will begin. Credit card brought to you by Bank of Ireland in partnership with Aer Lingus. Whether you're buying your weekly basics or splurging on a special gift, with Air Credit Card, you'll collect Avios and unlock even more rewards. The only credit card in Ireland that gives you travel rewards as you spend. Sign up now by searching Bank of Ireland Air Credit Card and go from tap to takeoff. Bank of Ireland, begin. Over 18s only. Acceptance criteria, lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. Subject to a monthly fee of €7.99 and annual government stamp duty of €30. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.